0: As we shift towards our teaching time, uh, we're going to do that by starting with a scripture reading from what we'll be looking at today in the scriptures. Our friend Jenny, I think, is going to come and lead us through that portion now.
1: This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.
2: Good morning, church family. Good. It's good? Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And glad to have you join with us today. We are, as a church, going through the book in the New Testament that's known as Colossians. The, the book of Colossians is a letter Written by two early church leaders, Paul and Timothy, to a church in a city called Colossae. And it has a lot of really good instruction on how to be a good, healthy, and thriving church. And if uh, you missed last week... Uh, one of the things you should know about this series is we are doing this series in conjunction with Martha Lake Baptist Church, who Pastor Shane just mentioned a moment ago. We're uh, waist deep in conversations about merging together here over the next few months. And so um, if you get an opportunity, they worship at 11 o'clock, encourage you. uh, It's totally fine to miss out here and go over to Martha Lake and and vice versa. Lots of their folks have been coming and visiting here. And this is uh, a series that we're doing together as we go through the book of Colossians. And I'll say this too. Uh, we shifted gears. We were going to do a different book of the Bible to start out 2020. And as I was talking with Jason, the pastor over at Martha Lake, he's like, well, we just did Philippians like two years ago. And so we kind of prayed and talked. and We made kind of a quick decision. Well, let's switch gears. And let's do Colossians. And friends, I would like to let you know that the Lord was looking out for us because I actually think that Colossians is even better for our church family in this season than the book of Philippians. Not that there's any bad book in the Bible to study, with the exception of Judges, that was tough, man. That was hard. Uh, there's no bad book in the Bible to study, but I really think that God has some things providentially for us from the book of Colossians in this time and in this season. So I'm excited to teach Colossians chapter one. Before we do anything, I can't do anything anything today if God doesn't show up and work in our hearts. Amen? And that's not insulting to me. That's just literally what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I'm recognizing my absolute helplessness to change anyone's heart or mind or life here today if Jesus doesn't show up in a powerful way. So we pray with me. God, we give this time to you. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that brings them to life in our hearts and in our minds. God, I ask that you would guard my lips and direct my words that I might teach that which is glorifying to Jesus and truthful and helpful for all of us. And God, I pray for every single person who's here today. Would you guard us where we need to be guarded? Would you strengthen us where we need to be strengthened? Would you convict us of sin where we need to repent and humble ourselves? And would you turn all of our affection and attention and priority in life to Jesus the the, the source of and the subject of this gospel that we proclaim. And we pray that this time uh, would just be something special right now because Jesus, you make your presence known among us. We pray this all in his name. Everyone said, amen. All right, you all have probably heard some variation of this joke. It's a standard placeholder joke. It can be used to make fun of any one of your friends and whatever it is that they're into. I'll just go with vegans today because that's how I'm feeling. So the joke is, the joke is, I actually heard this joke, I think, from a friend who was a vegan. The joke is, how do you know if someone's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you, right? And you can, you can put that, you know, with CrossFitters or whatever, like lots of different things that people are into. Star Wars fans, because all they'll have shared on their Facebook page for the last three months is baby Yoda memes. Like you'll know what someone is into, right? If, if someone was to describe your life, or maybe you're thinking of that friend or that family member, like they're all about what, you know, uh, that that you know, Seattle legend Marshawn Lynch, he's all about that action boss, right? Or that great British theologian Megan Trainor is all about that base. No trouble, right? What, whatever people are into, don't be embarrassed of me. My wife is covering her face in cringing as I, I'm just, I'm just showing you that I'm paying attention, right? Me and the kids, like, we know. We know what's up. Is Megan Trainor even popular with the kids anymore? I don't think so. Kids, sway in later. All right, here's the point. People will often gravitate towards things, and then that can be a major focus of your life. And the same is actually true about organizations or entities. You think of an organization like Disney is all about you know, unlocking magic in people's hearts or whatever. Everything they do between the movies and the parks and all the different things that they do is about trying to help people experience some sense of magic. Now, churches, this is where it relates to us as followers of Jesus and where it relates to this letter to the church in Colossians churches can be all about a thing. So some churches are all about right doctrine. And all of their website, the doctrinal statements of 1400 pages long, and all they offer is classes and doctrine and systematic theology and Bible. Now some churches are all about social programs. Uh, 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 you know, bringing clothes and food to those who are homeless and foster care and outreach and, and, you know, international missions to Honduras and to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and then other churches, man, they're all about prayer and the move of the Holy Spirit and miracles and seeing God work in powerful sorts of ways and yet still other churches are all about relationships and we're going to help you have a strong marriage and be the best parent you can possibly be and and be the best employee or boss and we're going to have really good small groups and relationships. Now, by themselves, is any one of those things wrong or bad? No, of course not. But see, there's an even more fundamental thing that we as a church, that the church, needs to be all about if any of those other things are to have meaning and weight and value and success, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see here in the book of Colossians that Paul and Timothy are writing this letter in part because there is some false teaching that is threatening the church. There's a combination of some mysticism and some uh, orthodox Judaism and some paganism, and the combination is veering people away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Timothy write this letter to help correct some false doctrine, and we're going to get there in chapter 2. But before they do the work of correcting false doctrine, the first thing that they want to do is establish what is the right doctrine. And they say it explicitly in chapter one, that this is all about the gospel or the good news. Gospel is a word that just means good news. Back in verse five, we looked at this last week. They write to this church, you've already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the the gospel that has come to you. This gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing all over the world, just like it has with you since the first day you heard it and came to appreciate God's grace. And then they go into this long exposition of the gospel that we're going to unpack today. And the last verse in this section, they write, the gospel, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul uh, singularly says, I have become a servant of it. This is all about the gospel. And friends, I want to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have been a follower of Jesus, let's just say for more than five years? Okay, that's many, most of you in this room. If you have been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, there can be an accidental thing that you and I do as individuals, or we do corporately as a church, and that's think of the gospel as something that you have to interact with early on in order to be saved and to get into the family of God, and then you move on from it into more advanced topics in the Christian faith. But I want to encourage you to think differently about the gospel. The gospel is not just like the entrance. It's not like when you Uh, Took your driver's license test, right? You guys took your driver's license test. I hope you took your driver's license test. I hope that somebody who drove you here today has a license and is not operating a vehicle illegally. But you take that driver's license test, and if you're like most people, you take the test, you pass it, and then you promptly forget everything you learned in driver's ed, except for like, oh yeah, don't speed and don't wreck the car, and like, is it eleven and two or ten and three or I don't, you know, you don't remember those fundamental things. I want you to think of it more like the foundation of a house. Yes, the gospel is first and early and primal when it comes to the Christian faith, but you never move on from it. It's not like the builders come in and build the foundation of the house and then build the rest of the house and then they say, oh yeah, the concrete guys will be back next week now that we're done to pick up the foundation and leave with it. You want, your like you really want your foundation to stay put. Like that's the whole point of the foundation so that you can build on it. And so friends, today in Colossians chapter one, this is about as Write down the heart of the plate fastball of a gospel sermon as you're going to ever encounter, and may we never be tempted to think that just because we've been followers of Jesus for a longer time that we have moved beyond the gospel. Can I get an amen from anybody in the house here today, okay? This is applicable and important for all of us, and I want us to see really two primary things as we go through this passage. Number one, the gospel is for us, but number two, the gospel is not about us. It's about Jesus. The gospel is not about you. I love you. I'm sorry if that upsets you. Tough luck. The gospel is about Jesus and it has massive implications for you and for me. Okay? So we're going to pick up in verse 15. After the introduction, Paul and Timothy write, and this section is sometimes referred to as the Christ hymn. You can see the poetic language in English. Uh, Scholars who know the Greek language better than I do would say you can really see the poetry and the symmetry in this section. Uh, it's It's an early hymn. Scholars don't really know if this is something that Paul and Timothy themselves composed or if it was something that was more widespread in the early followers of Jesus movement and they borrowed it. We don't exactly know, but we know that it sets forth this fundamental doctrine about Christ, the fundamental truths of the gospel, the foundation that we all must build upon. So, verse 15, he, Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Wow. Okay. That is a dense passage of scripture. We love all of the Bible. We love all of the scripture. But if you wanted to like put one section of scripture like this is like the maybe one of the best summaries of the entire Bible, I would, I would put Colossians 1, those verses right there at the top of the list. A few things we see about this passage here. First of all, Jesus is truly human. Did you see where it said he is the image of the invisible God? Now, when you hear the words, image of the invisible God, maybe you would say, well, how does that mean he's a human? Doesn't that mean he's God? He's the image of the invisible God? Isn't that saying he's God and we can see him? Yes, we'll get there in a minute, but because you are good followers of Jesus who love not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, right? Mm, yeah, oh man, don't make me go back and preach Daniel again. Okay, listen. My, my youngest daughter, she's in first grade, and I think she was like at a vacation Bible school thing. They gave her one of those little Bibles that's the New Testament, but then Psalms and Proverbs. And God bless her, she's so sweet. She wants to read it all the time. And I'm like, but it's missing two-thirds of the Bible. And second of all, it's like a four-point font that even you with your young first grader eyes can't even read. But I just bite my tongue because I love my daughter. But the point is... All scripture is God-breathed, amen? I gotta go tell my daughter that after this service. Okay, when you hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, you, good students of the book of Genesis, oh, I don't know, the first chapter in the whole Bible, you ought to be thinking, image, image of God. Where have I heard that before? Oh, I know. When God created humankind, male and female, he created them in his, what's the word, sound city, in his image and likeness, he created them. Now, this language of image is loaded when you start to study the context of the ancient Near East. I actually just finished a book this last week, I finished a book on the Old Testament hmm, called uh, Bearing God's Name. It's by a scholar from Canada, but don't hold that against her. She's uh, incredibly smart. This book is amazing about how Sinai is still relevant to us. The book had nothing to do with the book, uh, the, the book had nothing to do with Colossians, but towards the end, she started referencing and how Colossians ties back to Sinai. And I found this quote. It was awesome. I, w- I want to read it to you. She says this She says, In the ancient world, image or salam that's the hebrew word was something concrete every deity had a temple and every temple had an image the image was a physical representation of the deity it's a visible sign of his or her dominion that they're ruling and they're in charge john walton he's another scholar that I actually read a bunch of last year he argues that the creation account in genesis is meant to remind us of a temple dedication ceremony Yahweh has built the cosmos or he's built the universe as the temple in which he resides and the domain over which he presides and rather than setting up a statue of himself he makes men and women we function as the sign of his rule to the rest of creation what did God say to Adam and Eve what did he say Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. God said, I'm gonna make these images of me and we're going to partner with God under his loving rule to bring his goodness and his rule to all of creation. That's what we were created to do. How do we do? You can't even turn the page to literally, like the second page of your Bible before the image bearers messed it all up. And you and I have not imaged God well. You and I have not lived up to our created purpose to serve as a sign of the wise and loving rule of God over all things in creation. So when we hear that Jesus is the image, he's the perfect image of the invisible God, we are to think, oh, He did it. He actually lived the life that a human is supposed to live. Where you and I have failed, Jesus has succeeded perfectly. Amen? He is the true human. He's the true human. And I'll get back to our sin in a minute here. So don't worry, I got more to say about that. But I just want you to focus on Jesus and his perfection. There's one other word here that briefly uh, deserves uh, some explanation. And it's this word of firstborn or the language of the firstborn of all creation. And when you and I think of firstborn, our mindset is we think of like literally the firstborn born, which leads people, uh, actually has led people for centuries to think the first one created. So an early heresy came about in roughly the late 200s, early 300s. It was known as Arianism. A guy named Arius started saying, and actually he used this verse. He said, well, it says that Jesus is the firstborn. That means he must be the first created. And it caused a big hubbub. And a guy named Athanasius was really mad about it. And they had this big council, the council of Nicaea, where Santa Claus, I mean, uh, St. Nicholas, literally the actual St. Nicholas showed up and church history tells us he punched Arius because he was so mad Santa Claus punching a heretic. Like, it's a beautiful thing. He's not riding reindeer. He's punching heretics, and that's great. They had this big council because of a misunderstanding of what it means to be firstborn. You know that this same teaching that was denounced as heresy almost 1,700 years ago, still lives on in the teachings of the Jehovah's Witness Church. It's what they teach about Jesus, that he's the first created being. But it all really could be solved if we could have a more biblical understanding of what the word firstborn actually means. Sam Storms is a pastor and an author who I deeply respect. He says this in his commentary. He says, the word firstborn does not itself necessarily mean first in sequence or first in time, it can also mean first in rank or supreme in dignity. The point is that the Son, by virtue of being the image of God, has a preeminence and exercises sovereignty over everything else that exists. The word is used this way of King David in the Old Testament. In Psalm 89, God says of David, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. For those of you who know the story of David, is he the firstborn son? Like not even close. He's so far down in the the order of birth that his dad forgot that he was even there. Like typical parents with the youngest kid, like, I guess I do have another son. I think he's out taking care of the sheep. All you kids who are like, I'm the youngest kid. I know what that feels like. God is saying that this, you know, really far down the list son is actually going to be the firstborn, the one who is God's chosen king to rule over his people Israel. At the point then is that Jesus Christ is utterly unique, distinguished from all creation because he is both eternally prior to it and supreme over it in the sense as verse 16 makes clear that he is its creator, which leads me to point number two about this is that Jesus is truly God. So Jesus is truly human, but at the same time, he is truly and fully God. Verse 19 says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. How much of his fullness is that, Sound City? All. Yeah, I'm not a Greek language expert. I looked it up. In the Greek, it's all, okay? The entirety of who God is, the the fullness of his essence, the fullness of his nature. Jesus is not a a, a really good guy who became God. He is God in human form. And then there's all this language in verses 16 and 17 where it talks about, like verse 17, it says, you know, all things hold together in him, or verse 16 says everything was created by him. There's all this language. And I could take you to dozens of places in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, where where like in Isaiah 14, Yahweh is speaking, He says, I'm the creator of the heavens. I'm the God who formed the earth and made it. I established it. I did not make it to be a wasteland, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. It's about as clear as you can get. I created it all myself, no one else. And yet, here is Paul and Timothy saying, oh, this is true about Jesus. So either we have a contradiction in our Bibles or Jesus is fully and truly God. So when we see this this portrait of Jesus, we're to see fully God, fully man. And we need one who is fully God and fully man because that's how our salvation actually gets accomplished. He's a true human, so he can can live the life and and he can can pay the penalty for our debts, but he's fully God, so he can actually live the perfect life that we were unable to. Third point, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. It says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Listen to this language. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... That's the language of authority. That's the language of government. And if you'll remember, when we went back in in Daniel chapters like 10 and 11, we see that there are earthly powers who are claiming to be sovereign, right? Like you don't have to look very far. Today, throughout all of history, earthly powers, earthly governments have said, we're in charge, you have to do what we say. And then we peel the curtain we get a look behind the scenes we realize that there are spiritual realities behind those earthly realities and there are spiritual forces saying I'm in charge and yet over all of it is Jesus Christ saying no I'm in charge (laughs) it says here that in him all things hold together that reminds me of one of my favorite verses from Hebrews 1 where it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power All things hold together. All things are upheld. Do you know why that chair you're sitting in is still a chair at this exact moment and doesn't just disintegrate and turn to nothingness? Because Jesus says so. Do you know why you have breath in your lungs and blood coursing through your veins right now? Because Jesus says so. Do you know why that cup of coffee you're holding in your hand and you're drinking helps you wake up? Because caffeine is a vassal constrictor and it makes your heart pump faster and all of that works together to perk you up because Jesus says so. Friends, there's a lot of people, a lot of institutions, a lot of things claiming supremacy, but at the end of the age, the sky will crack open and the word of God tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and he's in charge forevermore. And that's good news. It means we don't have to freak out when we look at earthly governments doing things that we don't think they should be doing. We don't need to panic. We can be frustrated, we can be brokenhearted, but we cannot be fearful because we have a sovereign king. He's in charge. And even though at times we wish he would return more soon, we wish that we would see all of that sovereignty lived out, we must be patient. Fourth point, he died and he rose. This is is where the rubber really starts to meet the road. That Jesus, it says in in verse 18 that he's, he's not only the firstborn of all creation, he's the firstborn of the dead. If he is, logically, go with me on this, if he is the firstborn of the dead, that means he would have had to die. Thank you, yes, you're tracking with me. I mean, this is like the heart of what the gospel is, is that Christ died on the cross. That he, he paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserve for not being the image bearers that we were created to be. But there's more that Jesus does. He, he, he not only pays the penalty for our sins... But in so doing, he conquers over these, uh, these rebellious spiritual forces. And we're going to get more into that in chapter 2. But Jesus, the, the cross, what looked like his greatest moment of defeat is actually his greatest moment of victory because in his death, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. It says later in chapter 2 that he put them to open shame. But friends, it says that he's the first born from the dead, which is great news for us because guess what? He didn't stay dead. We don't serve a dead religious founder or the empty promises of some guy who wanted to teach us about God. He said, I am God. I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to kick Satan's butt and redeem you all forever. And that's great news for us. This is like every Sunday when we gather together it's like a miniature Easter because like I have a hard time getting up in the morning. I don't wake up easily and I'm very grumpy for a while. And I think to myself sometimes, I can get out of this bed. If Jesus could get up out of the grave, I can get up and I can go gather with my friends and we can worship together. Every Sunday is like a miniature Easter. He's the firstborn from the dead. This is incredibly good news for us. And I like that it says he's the firstborn from the dead because in that, that firstborn language means there's there's more to come. Other passages talk about him being the first fruits. Jesus said, all who trust in him, though you die, yet shall you live and he'll raise you up on the last day. So we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the worst that this world has to throw at us if we place our faith in this Jesus and his gospel. Number five, it's bigger than just us, though. It says that Jesus is reconciling all things. Verse 20, he's, he's reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, not just physical realities, but spiritual realities. He's bringing reconciliation. Friends, sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we can say that the gospel is Christ died and he's reconciled us back into right relationship with the Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Is that true? Yes, 100%. But there's, but there's more. The gospel's bigger than you. Jesus doesn't just save you so that you can sit back in your recliner and say, wow, I'm so happy that Jesus saved me. The end. No, it says that Jesus is reconciling all things unto himself. And you have been reconciled to be a part of that mission of God. And that plays out in a million ways. It plays out in you sharing the gospel with the next person so they can be reconciled. It plays out in you being a part of of helping steward the creation that God has given to us. It even goes all the way up to the highest levels where the Apostle Paul in one of his other letters says that we will one day judge the angels. Does that mess with anybody else's mind or just me? Like, I don't know how to judge the angels, but the word of God tells me that's gonna happen, that, that my salvation and my redemption is part of God making all things restored, reconciling all things to himself, and that even includes spiritual realities that I don't even know how to traffic in, but I'm just trusting Jesus that he's gonna help me as we go. The gospel is bigger than just I got saved. It includes that, but it goes beyond that. And then the last thing is that Jesus specifically leads the church. Specifically leads the church. In in the Greek, you can see the, the poetic symmetry better. But if you look, even in the English, it's like the beginning goes, the image, firstborn of creation, for in him all things. And then the second half, he's the beginning, firstborn from the dead, for in him all the fullness of God. There's this symmetry. There's a, you know, like if you write a song, sometimes you have you know, lines that rhyme. The dead center, the one line that's right in the dead center for emphasis is, he is the head of the body, the church. I, I love our church. And there are, there are not very many things that I lose sleep over. Um, my family... And this church. Uh, I know I've complained about my car a lot in recent weeks. I don't lose sleep over it. <laughs> I hate it. I want to light it on fire, but I don't <laughs> lose sleep. Uh, you know, S- Seahawks aren't playing this afternoon. Sorry. I'm asleep just fine tonight. It's okay. <laughs> I do lose sleep sometimes over this church. And when I come across a verse like this, it says, he is the head of the body, the church, it makes me realize just how much more deeply I need to put my trust in him. Because guess what? Uh, Jesus loves this church and is working a lot harder on this church than I ever could. (laughs) I'm I'm one of the elders, one of the shepherds of the church. Oh, except for the Bible says that Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church. Some of you are, you know, got some deacons in the room. Servants, the word means servants. And then it says that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. So Jesus is the hardest working deacon in our church. And some of you are members, you're living stones being built together, members of this household, except for Jesus is the cornerstone. So he's the most active and involved and faithful member that there is in this church or any other church. Man, he loves us a lot, doesn't he? So if you love our church, praise God. Just know that Jesus loves our church and every other one that belongs to him more than we ever could, and that's incredibly good news. This is what they lay out as the gospel. Now, we spent a lot of time unpacking this because this is really, uh, I mean, like, this is what it is to be a Christian. This is, um, there's more to it than that, but this is what it is to have the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What is he doing? What's his place? Now, I said earlier, the gospel is not about you, but the gospel is for you. And in these next few verses, we'll move a lot quicker, but I want you to see four ways that the gospel has implications for us. So picking up in verse 21, once upon a time, you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death for this reason. Here's why he did it. To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Well, if you remain grounded and steadfast uh, in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. The first thing that we see when we understand the gospel, it requires some honesty. You once were alienated and your mind was broken and you didn't think right about God, the world, yourself, or anything. And you know what that led to? Evil actions. Now, some of you here today Maybe you're not a Christian and you're you're thinking to yourself, yeah, here we go again, another church talking about how bad we are, always trying to make people feel bad. But listen, friends, if the reality is bad, wouldn't you want to know so that you might be able to do something about it? I had to, oh my gosh, I had to take my car into the shop this week. You guys, y'all pray for me, okay? And while I was driving my car to the shop, all I could think was, I hope they don't look under the hood and find anything else because I might literally just light the car on fire and leave it somewhere. And and then the thought occurred to me, like, no, you know what, that's dumb. If there is something wrong with the car beyond, you know, the the battery issue I was having, I hope they do find it, because if not, I could be a real danger to myself, my family, the other people on I-5, whatever. Friends, we live in a culture that says that they value authenticity. I'm just being real. I'm just being authentic. Why can we not be real and authentic about the things that we're embarrassed of, the things we're not proud of, the things, like the gospel gives us freedom and permission. If we're as loved, if we're as secure, if we're as saved as I just said we are, then we ought to start by being honest about the reality that's going on in our lives. We're freed. Christians have nothing to fear about being honest. And it's actually where it all starts. God, I come to you and I admit that I am a mess. And the gospel not only requires honesty, but it does go from there to requiring change. It says, he did all this stuff, he he reconciled us in his body in order to present you holy. And blameless and above reproach before Him, friends. Listen again. If you're if you're not a believer in Jesus, you are welcome here today as you are. God loves you right where you are. But praise God, He's not going to leave you where you are. Some of you have been a Christian for a while. Okay, maybe you became a Christian as an adult, and you think back to your younger years and you think, Oh my goodness, I was a moron and I thought dumb things, and I did dumb things, and maybe some of you is like, there are things I wish I could take back and do over again. Praise God, you're not that person anymore. Amen? He's changed you. He's, he's grown you. And you're not the person you yet want to be. Anybody here perfect or finished or done? No. Now, some of you became Christians in your youth, and you, by God's grace, avoided some of those dumb things. You don't have, like, these major regrets you look back on. But could you imagine what you would be like if you hadn't had God working on you this whole time? Okay, like I, have, I, I came to faith in Jesus as a young boy and I am still a scoundrel. And I am like, my goodness. I asked my wife one time like a month or two ago, like, could you imagine if I wasn't a Christian and she said this conversation needs to end now? <laughs> because like just if God hasn't been working on me and safeguarding and, and, and God's gonna change us and he's gonna grow us, amen? So, so he's going to present us holy before his father. There's a, there's a quote, I won't read it now, but, but C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about how the Lord's like a dentist. You go for one thing and then before you know, they're just fixing everything and you're like, ah. Uh... Which means, number three, the gospel requires some Grit. He says he's going to do all this stuff if you indeed continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You ever had like the dentist working on you and you're like, I just need to be done. I'm quit. I'm done. Uh, You can pull that tooth. You can pull all my teeth. Fit me for dentures. I give up. Let's be done. You know, there's a lot of pressure to drift, to, to shift, to waver in our faithfulness to Jesus. There's pressure from the culture, there's pressure from the outside, but if we're honest, there's pressure from the inside too because we're weak. And sometimes that process of change is not always pleasant. Let me say that again. The process of change is never pleasant. But God loves you too much to leave those parts of you that are, that are still, you know, the, the old sin nature. He loves you too much to let that continue to rule your life. He wants to rule your life because he alone loves you. So the gospel requires some grit. And then lastly, the gospel requires telling somebody. I read a quote from someone recently that said like our joy isn't fully complete until we've told someone about it. And and, and you know Paul says here he goes you know this is the gospel it's being proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and I become a minister of it. And I want to encourage you. I want to close with the thought on this is uh, last year when we were doing the Book of Daniel we handed out that book called Evangelism as Exiles. And if you didn't get a copy of it, I think we still have some left. Go talk to the folks at Connect Us. We'll figure out how to get it to you if you want to read it now. But in this book, the author, Elliot Clark, was talking. he, He served as a missionary overseas for a number of years, and he talked about how coming to America, he started seeing things with different eyes. And one of the things he noticed is how often we use the language of sharing our faith. He says this, he says, for some time now, American Christians have conceived of their witness in terms of sharing the gospel. Read any book or listen to any talk on personal evangelism, and you'll inevitably encounter the phrase. On one level, the terminology is good. It's a fine thing to say. Conveying the gracious act of giving others a treasure we possess. However, if by sharing we imply a kind of charity where we only give the gospel to willing recipients— well, then our Christian vernacular, our, our Christianese language has become a problem. See, sharing, oh, he says, especially since the Bible rarely uses such language to describe the act of evangelism, and it's true, I printed off a PDF, you can go on our website and download it, and look, I found two verses in the whole New Testament that use that kind of language. It's a lot more about proclaiming the gospel and pro, you know, preaching the gospel. He says this, sharing typically involves the act of giving something to someone who desires it. Children share, or don't share, Legos with other kids who want them. Friends share a great cookie recipe with another friend who asks for it. Or we might share money with those holding a cardboard sign at the street corner. In each case, we share with others because they're asking for what we possess. And here's the kicker. The reality is, few people are ever begging us to share the gospel with them. If what Paul and Timothy said was true, that people are alienated and hostile in their minds and steeped in evil deeds, then it's going to be the rare case. I mean, God is sovereign. He does amazing things. Sometimes I call it fish jumping in the boat. You You ever had that? Like just someone just like walks up like, I just need you to like tell me about Jesus and I gotta get saved. I'm like, oh, well this is, I'm a great evangelist. And then I pray with them and like it's, it's happened like a couple times, two, three times in my life. Actually, I have had a fish jump into my boat literally one time too. That happened. But most of the time, the work of, of gospeling is harder work because people don't want to necessarily hear it. Look, all I'm saying is this. Don't put the burden on them take the responsibility upon yourself. I need to find a way to tell them about Jesus. I need to find a way to proclaim this truth. I'm not just sharing it like, well, I'm just waiting for them to ask. Proclaim the gospel. This gospel must be proclaimed. So let me just ask this question in closing. Are we all about the gospel? See, you might say, and I might say, well, Obviously, I'm all about the gospel. You know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I know that Jesus lived and died, but, but you have these moments in your life where God, in his kindness, will, will allow you to go through something where you kind of get bumped a little bit and you start to see where your foundation really lies. couple quick examples. Your performance can become... Uh, An impedance to being founded on the gospel. You might say, Yes, I really am founded on the gospel, but then you have a really bad month at work and you don't perform well and things that usually come easily don't work well and all of a sudden you're frustrated and all of a sudden you're insecure and all of a sudden you're waking up at night thinking about how you need to work harder and do different things. Look, I'm not saying to not be frustrated if you, if you have a, a tough time at work but I'm saying if you're really founded on the gospel, you will know that your deepest well-being is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. So while you may be frustrated or disappointed, it's just not going to shake you in the same way. You tracking with me? Parents. Have you ever had a time like where your kid does something kind of uh, horrible and embarrasses the heck out of you? You ever had that? No, kids cover your ears. I know you're not. This is not you kids, right? But like parents, you have that moment and it's like, "Okay, my kid just acted like a kid." <laughs> And hey, I'm, I'm really sorry that they you know poured this entire tree of cookies on your head. I'm, I'm really sorry. Let me help. Let me pay for you. Whatever. You can do that. But I've seen this at times with parents. Like, the kid acts up, and you can tell, oh, this parent has a lot of their identity writing on their kid's behavior. Oh, I'm so sorry. Ah! And like, it just shakes you to a deeper level as opposed to, you know what? My deepest well-being is not founded upon the activities and choices of a seven-year-old whose brain is not fully formed yet, Okay? What about your prayer life? How much time do you spend asking God for things versus how much time do you spend just thanking God for what you already have in Christ Jesus? Obviously, it's not wrong to ask for things, but these are these opportunities where it's like, man, maybe I'm not quite as personally founded on the gospel in my heart as I need to be. And you know what? God loves you. And he's gracious, and anytime time he gives you an opportunity where you go through that little bit of shaking, it's so that you might have more solid footing on the rock that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want that for you, I want that for us. As we head into this next year, as we head into this next season as a church, there will be change, there will be transition, there will be opportunities for, oh, this doesn't feel like stable footing, and friends, every single one of those moments is an opportunity for us to go deeper down on the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? And as we turn our attention to celebrating the Lord's table, something that we do every single week, it's so that we can celebrate primacy of the gospel. So let's pray together. God, thank you for the truth about Jesus. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. And I pray for myself and and anyone else here today, if we're ever tempted to think that we should move on past the gospel, God, would you redirect our attention God, for each of us who are here today and and we have those moments where we're shaking or where life isn't going the way we want it to or things aren't exactly how they should be, God, would you help us to look into our hearts and see if any of that is made worse by not having our primary identity being founded on the gospel. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to a celebration of the Lord's table, your broken body and your shed blood for us, help us as individuals and as a church be more fully grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Pastor Kyle.
0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor. And we're going to respond now through the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the younger students class to come and join us when they're ready. Uh, You should have received the community elements on your way in. If you didn't, feel free to grab those. If you do have them, feel free to pull those out and just hold on to those for just a few moments. Church, one of the ways that we can uh, be all about the gospel is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. This this time where we come together, where we gather on the table and where we take the cup, where we take the bread that reflects, that resembles uh, Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' death, his uh, giving of himself as a sacrificial uh, atonement for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we can be all about the gospel as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, setting aside this time to reflect on this truth reflect on Jesus' sacrifice. I'm going to read for us from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love that, the line from Colossians today that, that says that uh, um, Jesus makes peace by the blood of the cross. And I was thinking about the idea of what's the opposite of peace? It's war, it's destruction, it's death, it's terrible things. And Jesus, by his death, makes peace, reconciles all things to himself. That's a powerful thought. And then, uh, so we're reflecting, we're remembering Jesus' sacrifice and the word called. Paul calls us to examine ourselves. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're called to reflect, and then we're called to examine. Let's take some time now to examine our hearts, to go before the Lord, to meet with Jesus, and to, um, to celebrate, too, to celebrate this gospel, this amazing news that, that Jesus has given himself, his sacrifice has paid for our sins. I'm going to pray for us, and I would encourage you to take a moment to reflect and examine. And then when you're ready, take of the bread and of the cup, and then let's stand together and sing and celebrate our King, and our Savior. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, this weekly reminder of the gospel, of your goodness, of your love for us. You love each and every person here. You have given yourself for us as a sacrifice, and so we praise you. We worship you, Jesus, and we we just ask that you would come meet with us now. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you convict where conviction needs to be Would you help us to repent, to trust in you in greater ways, and to be all about the gospel? We love you, and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.